Hello, and welcome to a very special episode of Get Me Another. Usually, we are the podcast that explores those movies that followed in the wake of blockbuster hits and attempted to replicate their success. But not today. Not today, baby. Today is the first in a series of bonus episodes that we are calling Don't Get Me Another. My name is Chris Iannacone, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Rob Laborgis. How big am I? That's the single. Uh, <laughs> in, each, <laughs> in each Don't Get Me Another episode, rather than talking about a blockbuster film or the movies that followed them, we'll be discussing a major motion picture that missed the mark and that Hollywood subsequently shunned. A movie that could have been a trendsetter, if it hadn't been a commercial disaster. Essentially, we are going to be talking about anti-blockbusters, the opposite of those movies which usually kick off a Get Me Another series. And today, we'll be exploring a movie which was such a commercial disappointment that its title became a synonym for box office bomb. This is Don't Get Me Another Ishtar. Three, two, three, four, four, two, three, and... These men are pawns. I put a price of 20,000 dirham on their heads. Next, they will be hailed as the two messenger of God. They were just a couple of songwriters who came to Ishtar to break into show business. So how do they wind up on everyone's hit list? Your life is in danger. Behave normally. We have a gun pointed at your back. No, don't put your hands up, you idiot. I can't believe these men may control the fate of the Middle East. This is unbelievable. Are the two American messengers of God dead yet? This is the oasis. Does this look like an oasis to you? Yeah, look at the birds. Are those vultures? Yeah, 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 yeah. He's aiming at it. Will you stop being paranoid? Run, smuck! They're trying to kill us. Warren Beatty, Dustin Hoffman, Isabella Johnny. Your girl! How did she get to be your girl? Ishtar, written and directed by Elaine May. <laughs> this is some of our best work. Now, we should say at the outset, Rob, that movies, the movies we'll be talking about in this, in this kind of sub-series are not necessarily bad. Plenty of good movies don't find success at the box office, and some movies that are now considered classics only acquire those reputations over the course of time. That's right. Uh, 
I very much like Ishtar. Uh, you know, it, it has some, uh, you know, anachronisms of its day that you have to overlook a little bit. Although I think far fewer than other movies of its era, quite frankly. Yes. Uh, especially given the subject matter, but we'll get into that. Especially given the subject matter <laughs> and the setting. Yes. yes. However, what I would say is that uh, to just reiterate and reinforce what you just said is this series really is only talking about the commercial response of the time yes okay because you might have even had a decent critical response but if you were a flop the hollywood system is not going to churn out more of you right yeah and now this was not a movie that was well well regarded critically at the time no, it was uh, not. <laughs> although it has it, you know th there was there was sort of a, a swarming effect you know it was the sharks you know there was blood in the water and they were all over it although it has undergone some critical reevaluation in the, in the years since and i like to think that's because of us yes <laughs> <laughs> we're just recording it now <laughs> The time travelers already heard this and they've gone back to re reform its reputation. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's true. Here's the thing about Ishtar. Uh, and, and some of the movies we'll talk about in the, in this series are, are part of the problem is that they cost so much to make. If Ishtar had cost a reasonable amount to make, it would have, it might have not made, you know, it wouldn't, People were ready to jump on this movie because it was such a, a the, the the production itself was such a disaster, which we're we'll get into. Um, and and you have such significant talent in front of and behind the camera that when you know when these movies don't succeed, it really makes a big impact. And that is the case with Ishtar. And I would go even further that for Hoffman and Beatty in particular who had had such a very long run of success, and yet by the late 80s are perhaps no longer, um, you know, like Tom Cruise is coming up. You have other stars yeah. coming up who are younger, who are replacing them. And it's almost like the perfect timeline for people to take these two old guys down a peg. And granted, they were not that old at the time, but for the, you know, in the in the realm of Hollywood. And it's kind of worth noting, I mean, Warren Beatty and Dustin Hoffman are two of the most iconic and representative actors of the Hollywood new wave movement that started in the late 60s. You know, uh, Beatty in, in Bonnie and Clyde, Hoffman in The Graduate. I mean, you were talking about two movies that kind of kicked off the new wave of Hollywood in the late 60s and that ran through the early 80s. So it's interesting that they that this movie would be centered around them. They're such iconic Hollywood stars for a very innovative era which was now ending. Oh, absolutely. And then additionally, um, while I can't uh, go back and, and provide any uh, real data on this, um, it was 1987 when this was released. Uh, you know, the country was a little more sexist. And I think being able to take down a, uh, a female writer director, yeah, you know, probably wouldn't, uh, I'll just put it this way. Like, John Landis worked after the Twilight Zone. Yeah, yeah. And, and Elaine May had trouble after this, and you're just like, uh, you know, come on. And and Hoffman, you know, we'll get into it, but but Beatty and Hoffman's careers went on. Hoffman won an Academy Award like a year later, but Elaine May never directed another motion picture. We'll we'll get into that and and yeah, there's there's definitely an aspect of that. 
So for those who don't know, Ishtar tells the story of Chuck Clark and Lyle Rogers, played by Dustin Hoffman and Warren Beatty, a pair of down-on-their-luck singer-songwriters who aspire to be the next Simon and Garfunkel. And the pair take a gig as a lounge act in Marrakesh, Morocco, where they find themselves embroiled in Cold War-era international intrigue. Now, a little bit about the roots of Ishtar. They go back to the late 1970s when legendary writer-director Elaine May co-wrote with Warren Beatty his hit film, Heaven Can Wait. And she subsequently did uncredited rewrite work on Beatty's next picture, the Academy Award-winning historical drama, Reds. So Beatty very much wanted to continue working with Elaine May and started looking for a project that she could write and direct and he would star in. For her part, May was interested in doing a modern day, now this is a modern day being the 1980s, take on the Road to movies, starring Bob Hope and Bing Crosby. A little background for those who might not be familiar with what I'm talking about. Between 1940 and 1962, Hope and Crosby, along with Dorothy L'Amour, starred in a series of seven comedy films, beginning with The Road to Singapore. In each of these films, Hope and Crosby would play con men of some type that would journey to an exotic locale and become involved in adventure and intrigue. There would be songs, there would be comedy, and everything was kind of played with a light touch. The pictures themselves carried titles such as Road to Morocco, Road to Bali, and Road to Rio. So they collectively became known as the Road to movies. Uh, the last one of these was The Road to Hong Kong in 1962. Now, while they played different characters in each film, the actors always played the same types. Crosby was the ladies' man. And Hope was the bumbling comic relief, and Dorothy L'Amour was the often local love interest. So that was the vibe that Elaine May hoped to recapture with Ishtar. She wanted to cast Beatty against type as the bumbling comic role, and another actor as the confident ladies' man. That second actor turned out to be Dustin Hoffman, who May had worked with doing uncredited rewrites on his hit Tootsie. So this, this was sort of the impetus behind this. Yeah, and um, for me, the Rosetta Stone as to why this movie maybe didn't connect, all right? Because I have, I have theories on this. For me, the Rosetta Stone is a movie that came out two years earlier that did the same damn thing. I think I know what movie you're talking about. Spies Like Us. Yep. And if, if Ishtar had been a hit and more had happened, Ishtar probably would have been the second film in our Get Me Another Spies Like Us series. Yes. Yes. That is absolutely, yes, 100%. Spies Like Us, without the music aspect of it, yes. takes a lot from the road movies. Now, here's a key difference, Rob. Mm -hmm. The stars of Spies Like Us were Chevy Chase and Dan Aykroyd, who were comic actors, which Warren Beatty and Dustin Hoffman were not really known as. That is true, but I think that there these two movies, to me, showcase a crossroads of American comedy and where it was going. Now, it's easy to say this in hindsight, so I get to say it in hindsight. Uh, that's the beauty of hindsight. Oh, yeah. Spies Like Us is springing from the Animal House, Blues Brothers yeah. end of American comedy, where... Things are getting ridiculous, and uh, th this is the line that, to me, as it keeps going, you wind up with Adult Swim comedies on television now, where it's just, you know, scatological, absurdist, 
um, you could put 30 Rock in this category too, right? Where things are uh-huh. just, it is not real at all. Not right. even trying yeah. to be real. Uh, like, yeah, you're th- not trying to give the semblance of reality. Yeah. Yes. I, I'd even throw like 40-year-old virgin, uh, stuff like that uh, would be in this category as well, right? As you go further down the line. And so Spies Like Us is very much a comedy film that is going big trying to get a little more unbelievable and most importantly and look i love spies like us oh yeah it is a movie that explicitly tells you what is funny and where to laugh yes ishtar is going attempting to go in a different direction which this country it's just not where comedy was going right ishtar is a movie that has almost very very similar absurdist situations characters that i would argue are even more outlandish than in Spies Like Us. They're even dumber, right? Right. They're more unbelievable. And yet- Lyle Rogers <laughs> is a moron. Yes, yes. And yet every everything is presented as you would present it in a, in a drama. I mean, yes. there's differences in framing to get the comedy and all of that, but it is treated so straight. This is a, a, a strand of comedy that almost feels like English, as in United Kingdom, yeah, where as a, yeah, you you British British, you get this is the kind of thing that might lead you to even let's say a lot of the British sitcoms in the early aughts, including the original mm-hmm. Office, not the American Office, right? Where you you can have cringy things and they're presented, and you're kind of not told when and where to laugh and what is yeah. what is comfortable what is uncomfortable uh, obviously that's a fake doc the the office specifically and there are differences but i just this feels much more like it's trying to be outlandish but present it totally straight including in the crafting and that it's going to trust you to know where to laugh and that is not where the country headed <laughs> no and 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 it's interesting cuz you know Elaine May had directed a movie her first feature film that she directed was a movie called The Heartbreak Kid uh, which starred Charles Grodin and Sybil Shepherd and um and and who will, who Charles Grodin is also in this movie and we'll get to that it, it's very much it's about I don't know if you've seen it it's really interesting and it it is it's an absurd it is absurd situations, but as you say, it does not tell you when to laugh. It leaves you to figure out what's funny. And some of it is is very sort of dark and, and sort of played with a straight face, even if they are absurd situations. And Ishtar feels like it is building on the type of humor that that you saw in, in Elaine May's The Heartbreak Kid. But here's the thing. You can't because of of the of the audience that's out there that is not a movie that you can spend 50 million dollars in 1987 dollars making if you can bring that in for a, a low cost it can find its audience but when you spend that much money on something you know it needs to cast a wide enough net, and there was no way Ishtar was going to cast a wide enough net. It's just not that type of picture. No, I mean, and and you know, someone thought, hey, maybe if it had hit, this would have been the revelation. Yeah, you would have gotten rid of all of the old like popping your eyeballs out and all of the like waka waka stuff that's that's telling you this. But it, it didn't hit at the time. What's funny is that. If you had made this type of movie now, not that they make movies now, but if they did, uh, this fits. Uh, there is a certain brand of American comedy that I feel has taken more from 
British comedy, where I think this kind of thing and the tone of it would go over better now. Uh, one thing that I love, absolutely love, love about it that I didn't really, it didn't consciously pop in my mind until this rewatch for me mm. is that Lyle and Chuck are insane. Okay. I'll just say it, yeah. right? They, they have absolutely no grasp on reality. Yes. Uh, and, and they, but they are presented as tote, you know, in a very straight manner. What I love most is that I realized this is my experience of weirdos in real life. <laughs> right. And, and I say that affectionately, even people that I've like known for a very long time, no names. Uh, but like, <laughs> I, I'm sure if you're listening, you at some point have been on a subway or in a park or in line, you've been somewhere in public where a stranger has decided it's time to talk. Yeah. And that you've, you have, you know, had that stranger open their, their mind to you and you've gone, holy shit, <laughs> what is this person <laughs> saying? And it's so bizarre. And you have to sit there and Charles Grodin your face. And, <laughs> and, and so th- this is, I was, it, it's so much more my experience of in the real world meeting characters like this. Uh, and I love yeah. it. Yeah. We open with what is in my mind. We open with an amazing scene in the in, in Ishtar. Yes. What what is in my opinion the best, most accurate depiction of the reality of the collaborative creative <laughs> process yes. I have ever seen in a motion picture. As Beatty and Hoffman, as Rogers and Clark struggle to write their song, "Dangerous Business." Telling the truth can be bad news. Telling the truth can be bad news. Telling the truth can be tell telling the truth can be good news. Telling the truth is a bad idea. Telling the truth is a difficult problem. Telling the truth. Telling the truth is a is a scary. Telling the truth is a scary predicament. Telling the truth is a bitter herb. Telling the truth is a dangerous tunnel. When you get out of that tunnel, it's a black life ahead. Forget herb. I never heard of a hit that had the word herb in it. Telling the truth is a dangerous thing. Dangerous. dangerous. Telling the truth can be dangerous. dangerous. What? Danger. Telling the truth can be dangerous. Telling the truth can be dangerous business. Telling the truth can be dangerous business. Why? 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 Telling the truth can be dangerous business because if yourself, because you if don't you know t- why. Huh? Well, I'm just giving you what the idea is. Telling the truth can be dangerous business. If you don't know yourself, then you don't know why. Oh, is that brilliant? Telling the truth can be dangerous business. Honest and popular don't go hand in hand. If you admit that you can play the accordion, no one will hire you in a rock and roll band. But we can't sing, can sing our hearts out. And if we're lucky, we'll no neighbors complain. This, I mean, this is just 
Oh my goodness. Uh, we should say the songs in this movie are incredible. They were all written by Paul Williams uh, along with along with Elaine May and they are amazing and and they're kind of this incredible achievement in their own right as on the surface they're terrible because Rogers and Clark have no talent, but when you listen to them, they're actually kind of brilliant. And Paul Williams is quoted as saying, the real task was to write songs that were believably bad. It was one of the best jobs I had in my entire life. I've never had more fun on a picture, and I've never worked harder. And May insisted that William write the entire song, all of them, even if only a few lines were going to be used. Yeah, and the incredible part is that they are all earworms. Yes! They are bad. They are bad songs, but you don't forget them, which is... Oh, I've had dangerous business in my head all week. Yeah. I start I start singing it in my head all week, and it's like, oh my goodness. And, and the introduction in this scene... Oh, it's so good. I It happens over black. Yeah. With credits coming up. You just hear it. And you just hear it to start. You get into the scene after, but and you just hear them trying to come up with lyrics and going back and forth with each other. And Chris, I can't think of another movie. I'm sure there are some, but I can't think of another one where I have yet to even see the two main characters. And yet within 10 seconds or less, I know exactly, exactly who these people are yeah. <laughs> without having yeah. even seen them. It's a it's a bitter herb. It's a, it's stop stop trying to use the word herb. Nobody has there's no hit with has the word yeah. herb in it. Oh my god! Yeah. <laughs> uh, and that great moment where like uh, where, where Hoffman's character thinks he's got he's like yes I think I got it. Yes. So Rogers and Clark are these two talentless guys who are trying to write songs and trying to get an agent. They go to this open mic night where they meet agent Marty Freed, um, and he tells them he might be able to book them in Honduras or Morocco. And he's got that great line, a lot of acts would kill for a booking in North Africa. (laughs) (laughs) It's pretty great. I should say that the the movie also stars, in addition to Warren Beatty and Dustin Hoffman, Isabella Johnny, Charles Grodin, who we've already mentioned. Jack Weston plays Marty Freed, their agent, as well as Carol Kane and Tess Harper. And it's at this point that the movie, after they get the offer to go, you know, it's like, oh, well, Honduras or North Africa are where you could play. And in the mid 80s, those were not places you wanted to play. We get this extended flashback sequence where we get how Rogers and Clark met. And it kind of goes back and we get to see kind of their whole history together. Honestly, it might be my favorite part of the film. And it's got my favorite scene in the whole movie, which we'll we'll get into. Yes. But that said, I think there's an issue we should get into here, at least for me. And I don't know, Rob, you might not agree with this. In fact, I have a feeling you won't. But I think this movie has a, a casting problem. I think that Beatty in particular is not well cast. Like, I get the idea that they are casting against type, that they want Beatty as the bumbler and they want Hoffman as the ladies' man. And I think it kind of works for Hoffman because his character isn't really a suave guy. He's a loser pretending to be a suave guy. And that kind of works. But I don't buy Warren Beatty as Lyle Rogers for one second. (laughs) Oh, yeah, I do disagree with this. Um, I knew you would. I knew you would. Yeah. 
I just yeah. don't buy him. I, like he's too good looking to be this schlub. I just I can't I can't see it. There's a scene in that that flashback sequence. That it's a it's an extended flashback where we see him at his day job as an ice cream truck driver, and it's just the most absolutely absurd image of of Warren Beatty, who's still as handsome as Warren Beatty is, driving this ice cream like a schmuck. And I'm just like I can't buy Warren Beatty as a schmuck, but. You know, he's singing his own song about whatever Candy Ripple kisses, <laughs> totally ignoring a a throng of children chasing after his little ice cream truck trying to buy ice cream. But he's so in his own head. <laughs> it's true. And that, that for me is where the character, like the bearing that he brings or or does not bring, you know, to Lyle. I, I don't know, because I, you know, again, it's just a lot of people can look good just if you look at their face. But then you start to get in the style and the bearing and all of that. And uh, and in Lyle's case, how dumb he is on top of it all. And it's just, I don't know. It's not like, you know, the 30 Rock Beautiful Idiot, uh, where it's like, he's, <laughs> you know, no, he's, he's, not, he's not visually put together where, where you know, anyway. And he's, he's so well, simple. It, you know, and you mentioned 30 Rock. And I always, my issue with 30 Rock, and I love 30 Rock. I think it's, it's a brilliant show. But every time they get into Liz Lemon as this unattractive woman that nobody would want to be with, I'm like, it's Tina Fey. Are you out of your mind? She's wearing glasses, Chris. She's wearing glasses. <laughs> That's all I have to say. Yes. Uh, well, you know, it's like it's funny with that. Like Beatty is wearing a pocket protector like someone in the wardrobe department saw yes. Revenge of the Nerds and said, that'll make Warren Beatty look like a dork if we give him a pocket protector. No, he's still Warren Beatty. Also, I have to mention. I think Warren Beatty is he's supposed to be from the South and he has the worst, most inconsistent accent I've ever seen in a major motion picture. Like the, for the first time I noticed it was the scene after his wife leaves him. And I'm like, I start to question, was Beatty doing a Southern accent the whole time? And I just didn't hear it. And then it's like, no, no, he, it keeps coming and going. And in some scenes, it's more, it's more prevalent. Some scenes it's not there at all. And it is amazing. Yeah. I, it, and it's look for me, it just works for the character. Uh, and I believe, yes, not just the <laughs> South. But I think at one point late in the movie, they say Texas. I, I don't know which small town. Sure. You know, if, if I wanted to, just because I like it, retroactively justify it i would say that the choice is a guy from small town texas trying to make it in new york city so he's trying to get rid of his texas accent and is inconsistent in doing so that is that is fan that is fan canon that is head canon that is fan head canon there is nothing textual to indicate that <laughs> i think i think hoffman fares better i i like i i believe him as a guy putting on the front of being a winner. Like th there is a great scene where he's again in this extended flashback sequence where he's introduced in his job, which is actually singing in a Greek restaurant and he's playing for this old couple. And he says, well, you know, they came in a couple of years ago for their 50th wedding anniversary. And then a year later for their 51st. And now they're back. And I, I said I'd write them a song, and he sings the song about dying, which is like it's quote. It's like it's like I'm leaving some love in my will, and I'm like it is absolutely hysterical. 
Like, honestly, that whole first act where it's how they came together, oh, yeah. in my opinion, is the best part of the movie. And you get most of their musical performances. Uh, the bulk of them will be in that first act. You get some later. Yeah. And those sequences, the way, you know, the way that they are directed. And I mean, first of all, for me, Hoffman and Beatty are hilarious physical comedians <laughs> in this, in these scenes. <laughs> I mean, they're so absurd when they're performing. They're so absurd. And this is one where it really, when you watch those sequences in particular, it really reinforces the old chestnut that comedy lives in the two shot <laughs> and that you know drama lives more. Like the big dra- dramatic moments will, will be close up, but your big comedy moments are always two shots of the two of them or, you know, quite frequently. They're on stage and you have both of them. And I mean, it's, they're often just like locked shots for a while. And it's just, it's hilarious to me. (laughs) And then the the shots, the shots, the reaction crowd or non-reaction crowd shots, you have people trying to hold in. Like again, like they would in real life. They don't want to, you know, make a big stink face and like start booing them. Now, maybe the audiences would uh but back then you just have all these shots of people who are aghast and holding it in and we do get a famous uh a a future famous actor we do get uh, a young dylan baker yeah uh and as is one of the audience members and he's just sitting there sort of open mouth we later get a young matt frewer only a few years is one of the cia agents yeah uh, only a few years out from max headroom i want to talk about one scene in particular because there is a scene in this movie that i think is absolutely incredible where hoffman is contemplating suicide and he goes out on the ledge of a building mm-hmm. and Beatty goes out to talk him down and this scene is Elaine May at the very top of her game. It is incredibly written. It is incredibly acted. What in other hands would have just been sad is it's funny, it's touching, it is absurd, and it's heartfelt. Chuck, I know how bad you feel, but there's people in this world worse off than you. Poor people, uh, you sick people, people who haven't got anybody to go out on a ledge for them. Come on, give me your hand. Come on, Chuck. Take a little step here. Take a step. Take a couple steppies. Come on, couple little steppies. And a boy. Okay. Okay. All right. Lyle? Yeah. Lyle. Uh-huh. Are you disappointed in me? No. No, I mean because I'm not the kind of guy that you thought I was. You are the kind of guy I thought you were. I'm not, Lyle. I lived with my parents till I was 32. I've just dribbled my life away. It takes a lot of nerve to have nothing at your age. Don't you understand that? Yeah, most guys would be ashamed. But you've got the guts to just say the hell with it. You say that you'd rather have nothing than settle for less. Understand? I never thought of it that way. Yes. Poor liar. And I... 
was affected by this scene so profoundly because this movie at its core, for anyone out there who has attempted to forge a creative career or something that is out of the ordinary will understand how real that scene is and the and the and the the pain of when things don't work the way you want to and and Beatty has this amazing line that he says to to Hoffman he says it takes a lot of nerve to have nothing at your age you'd rather have nothing than settle for less yeah yeah Th- this this scene it really moved me cuz creative can, careers they can they can they can hurt you. They can they can be really hard, and they can really hurt. You might even say they're a they dangerous business. They are a dangerous business. They are. Well, <laughs> you left it. You've left it laying there for me. I had to. You know, it's this. It's amazing. Yeah, this scene in sequences is. I also uh, quite like it. Um, and it's it's extended because Hoffman is calling, uh, baby. You know, uh, calling Lyle, and and you get just to give what Chris was talking about where it's, it is funny, but it is also touching. It's, it's a scene and sequence that can shuttle from at the beginning when Hoffman's on the phone with him and he says, uh, don't call the police. This will ruin my name in show business when he's thinking of being out on the ledge. Right. Yeah. He does say that. And that's kind of, you know, it's like kind of the broad humor, but also showing where his head's at. And of course, all the police show up. Oh, his yeah. parents show up. His rabbi shows up. You see a cop like scaling down from the top of the building on a rope. Like as, like the, the scene is so amazingly shot. It is really incredible. And then it, it kind of ends with Lyle going out onto the ledge to get him. And you get, I didn't write this exact uh, line down, but it was you know, along the lines of uh, the things are hard, but some people don't even have someone to come out onto the ledge to get. Yes, that is, that is absolutely. That's that's what brings him in where you get a a actual touching moment of friendship, but it's still absurd. Like, like it's, it doesn't stomp on its own tone to get the heartstrings. It actually does it within the, within the, the setup that it is already done. It's just giving you a different flavor. It is absurd and it's heartfelt all at the same time. And it never, it, it doesn't toggle back and forth between both. It does it simultaneously. And it is so expertly done. Like, again, I, 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 I am not quite as in love with the film as you are, but this scene is so good. And Again, to anybody out there who's trying to put together a creative career, it's really hard. And and the, the pain that comes through, again, at the same time as the absurdity, it's a, it's a masterwork of a scene. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, I think relatable even beyond if you're in a quote-unquote creative career. Because, I mean, every, we all, every single one of us at some point in our lives feels like a smuck. A schmuck. It's a schmuck. Smuck. It's pronounced schmuck. Uh-oh. Smuck. Schmuck. Smuck. You really know the lingo, Chris. <laughs> the flashback sequence kind of comes to an end, and the duo decide to go to North Africa. They reason that it is safer than Honduras. And the movie shifts locations to Morocco and its fictional neighbor, the country of Ishtar. Now, this is this is where you get into life imitating art in absurdity. Originally, the plan was to shoot the desert scenes in the southwest United States. But... At the time, Columbia Pictures was owned by the Coca-Cola Company, and the Coca-Cola Company had money in Morocco that it could not repatriate. 
They couldn't get that money out of the country. So in order to spend that money in Morocco, they allowed shooting to take place in the actual Sahara Desert in Morocco. And production began in in 1985 uh, on the film in the Middle East, just as tensions were peaking following the hijacking of the Achille Lauro. And, and in addition, the Moroccan military was engaged in fighting guerrillas at the time. And there were rumors that terrorists might kidnap members of the cast. So locations had to be checked for landmines before shooting could commence. And Morocco just turned out to be a production disaster for this film. Yeah, it turns out when the real world CIA is trying to destabilize and play uh, Game of Thrones in countries – Maybe your American company shouldn't go shoot there. No, no. (laughs) (laughs) And once in Morocco, Elaine May, she clashed with Warren Beatty. They did not get along during filming. She also clashed with cinematographer Vittario Storaro, who had previously shot films like The Bird with the Crystal Plumage and Last Tango in Paris and Beatty's Own Reds and Apocalypse Now. Rob, imagine being the DP on a, on the Ishtar and Apocalypse Now shoots. I'm shocked he ever went on a movie set again. Yeah. And it, you know, and this just shows that um look, he had his big credits in the past and no one no one said you can never DP again because of this movie. No, cuz he went on to do, immediately after this he did The Last Emperor which he won the Oscar for. Yeah. He won his third Oscar for. But it's interesting cuz I'm watching this movie and I'm thinking to myself it doesn't look like a comedy. No. Like, I'm not even sure what that means, but it doesn't look like a comedy. Whereas Spies Like Us is shot like a comedy. So you, you kind of know when here it's shot like a drama set in the Middle East, but it's so absurd. Yeah. And, I, you know, to, to I guess just to stick with that for a moment. I mean, that's what I love about this movie. And, and now that you've laid some of this groundwork, also, I would like to bring up a, uh, a U.S. studio film in 1987 dealing with uh, North African politics and the CIA's involvement in that. This could be a recipe for absolute disaster. Right. I, I don't think it gets to that point. No. There are things that they do in this movie that you wouldn't now. Uh, no. Chief among them being the auction, the auction scene. scene. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, and and you know we we you may get there in a, in in a bit, but uh, for the listeners, the auction scene essentially is all predicated upon a very tired old joke that a language other than your own native language sounds like gibberish. It's that yeah, old yeah. joke. Hoffman gets mistaken for the 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 auctioneer in a weapons auction in the desert. Um, and he just, he goes off on this extended, it's, it is, oh, it's so weird. It's so, it's so weird. Um, yeah. And it's, and vaguely racist to be perfectly honest. Yeah. I mean, it's the timing, the, the timing within it is, is very good and technically done well. And I would, for me looking at it, I think it is less racist than a lot of stuff that would have been doing similar things at the time. Uh, frankly, less racist than the the Libyan terrorists that show yeah, up in Back to yeah, the Future. Yeah. Um, that this is this is not to say that you know I'm you know I still realize just inherent in the situation it's just probably not something you would do today, right? You know the other movie it brought to mind amidst all of this because I think there is a contrast is Big Trouble in Little China, a movie I love yeah. to the core of my heart, like as far down, like Big Trouble in Little China, I just love with all my heart. And that was also a bomb. Yes. But uh, God, I love it so. 
Big Trouble and Ishtar are doing a similar thing, but slightly differently. Big Trouble and Ishtar both have the traditional like white American leads being yep. presented as buffoons right. in situations where they're normally the infallible heroes, right? And they are poking great fun at that, okay? Which, you know, in some ways is, uh, if you want to think of it, more progressive for that time period. Sure. But what Big Trouble does that Ishtar does not is Big Trouble makes the real heroes, the actual, you know, Chinese-American actors yeah. who are in that area. Yeah. And they are the heroic ones doing stuff. And Jack Burton's kind of along for the ride and does, you know, gets to do one or two things himself. He gets his great moment at the end. Yeah. But that's that's really it. Whereas in Ishtar. There's no heroes. There, There's no heroes. And they're really, there's no great um, depictions of the local Moroccans or Ishtarians or yes. anyone. And, and so it doesn't quite have the same counterbalance, you know, for, for me. But it. It does avoid the most egregious stuff of its era, which is, you know, at, at least some. It is. But in any case, as, as we often say, older movies and context and taking things in, in as they are. They are they are what they are. Yeah. Rogers and Clark land in Ishtar and, and Chuck Clark uh, Hoffman almost immediately gives his passport and switches jackets with Shira Assel, played by Isabella Johnny, who claims that her life is in danger. And this leaves Chuck unable to cross the border into Morocco, and he sends Lyle on ahead to try and stay behind and get a new passport at the U.S. Embassy. Uh, Shira is part of a leftist group that is trying to overthrow the emir of Ishtar. Her brother found a map that somehow prophesized the emir's downfall, although honestly, Rob, I am not sure how. Like, the, the MacGuffin of this movie is very... Like, I kind of don't understand why it's so important, and they never really explain it. Yeah, well, this is a movie that you could argue has no story but plenty of plot. <laughs> yeah. It, it, and in comedies, that's often the case, and it, it for me, it doesn't matter. But I think this is indicative of they set up a MacGuffin, so they have a thing to chase. But I don't know why they're chasing it. I, I, I'm not sure either. <laughs> It's at this point we meet who I think is the best character in the film, CIA agent Jim Harrison, played by Charles Grodin. Grodin previously played the lead in Elaine May's film, The Heartbreak Kid, and he is just flat out amazing as this jaded, smarmy CIA operative. It's He's so good. He steals the movie for me. Oh, I would agree. He is my favorite part of this movie. I, I think I like Beatty and Hoffman a lot more than you do, but Grodin is still my number one. Grodin's so good. And I, I will say, I, I have never seen The Heartbreak Kid, so I will say this. But Chris, I'm, I'm going to blaspheme, at least in your eyes. Why, why, why would you do this? This is my favorite Charles Grodin performance, even... But Midnight Run. It's it, it's more than Midnight Run. Get out of here. It's bigger than hey, The Lonely can, no, Guy. Midnight Run is one of the greatest movies ever made. It is. It is. Yes. Oh, no, no. I mean, I, I, he, I Grodin know. is great in this movie, but Midnight Run is, is, is maybe the perfect two-hander movie with, with De Niro and Charles Grodin. Um, I could watch it every day and, you know, like, he's great. Don't get me wrong, but he's not. He's not. Midnight Run is peak Charles Grodin. I, I knew. I know that you feel that way. But I, I, I. That's it. I like his performance in this one. I think just a notch more. That's very close for me. But that's crazy. But it's it's. I yeah. mean, it is great. He's got. 
Hoffman, Hoffman asks how much money that he'd get for working for the CIA, and Groden responds, 150 a week. It's not much, but you can't put a price on democracy. <laughs> it's so good. And Groden has so many wonderful one-liners. Oh, he does. Like later on, when he's dealing with the uh, the ruler of, of Ishtar. Yeah, the emir. The emir is asking uh, to, uh, ha- you know, to have you know, Lyle and Chuck killed essentially. Yeah. And one, one of those scenes, uh, one of my favorites, Groden as the CIA agent says, the United States government will not be blackmailed, but I think we can meet your timetable. (laughs) (laughs) It is really good. Yeah. No, he's Charles Groden is incredible in this movie. Uh, And whether it's this or, or, or midnight run, you know, they're two of his best performances from a, from honestly a, a guy who had a lot of great ones. And his chemistry with Hoffman in those scenes where he's acting as the handler, there is such this bizarre quality to their interactions. It's really weird and really wonderful. It is super weird, and I love it. Harrison recruits Chuck into being a mole for the CIA and claiming that Ishtar is on the verge of revolution, which it is. Uh, And with Harrison's help... Clark is able to get over the border in time to do the show in Marrakesh with Lyle, which surprisingly goes well. Like that first Marrakesh show is is all right, yes. you know? And Shira has encounters separately with both Chuck and Lyle searching for the map. There is a great sequence where Chuck and Lyle are wandering around a marketplace followed by agents from at least four different intelligence agencies, and they have no idea that they're being followed. And it is kind of hysterical. The, the choreography of Warren Beatty being tailed by Hoffman. Yeah. Because, you know, and then they're being tailed by you know, CIA, by local <laughs> cops. Um, I think Turkish intelligence, the, the Russians at this point, uh, as well as the Ishtarians, I think. Yes. And at Shira's instruction, Lyle tries to make, he tries to contact her, her guy using the code phrase, I want to buy a blind camel. But he ends up at the wrong place. So he ends up actually buying a blind camel. A lot of this, the third act, is Hoffman Beatty and a camel. And Im- <laughs> Oh, yeah. And immediately following the purchase when they're together again with the blind camel, <laughs> you get the most extended blind camel running gag that you – it, it might go on for a reel. It is – and then there is more later even too once they're out stranded in the desert, but – and it's, in many ways, the same joke over and over again. It, it kind of is. It is. But it's somehow <laughs> still hilarious every time. I I can't explain it. Oh, it's it, – it, there's – what happens then is, is Lyle and Chuck, basically both the CIA – but both the CIA and the Emir of Ishtar, as well as the rebels that Shiro represents, they both want these guys dead. So uh, separately, they instruct both of them to go out into the desert and they give them directions and they tell them, oh, just keep dropping these beads because they'll glow at night and you'll be able to find your way back. That's which is and they don't realize that the beads aren't glowing while they're wearing them. So it does. it's like, you know, it, it's and, and here's where the film ends up. You have this. There's a lot of time. With Hoffman, Beatty, and a camel in the desert for a while. And I think this is the part of the shooting, like the actual production, where it really ran into trouble. Yeah. And they were able to, like, they shot apparently a ton of film that just 
was just not usable. Yeah. And in addition, this is the section of the film where that auction scene comes in. But also you do get, you know, a lot of things that don't uh, advance the plot in the traditional sense where you'll have them. uh, You have the gag with the die slowly coming off of uh, (laughs) Beatty's, you know, face mask. Yeah where he's getting progressively dyed bluer and bluer and bluer <laughs> in the face uh, as you go through this section. And in the beginning, it's very su- – it, they mention it once in dialogue. Yes. And then you see the it, it come off, the cloth come off, and you're like, oh, yeah, I guess that it is a little blue. <laughs> but a- as you go through, it, he becomes Smurf-like almost. <laughs> and uh, – and they're singing songs delirious to each other. And it's just – you get some weird, weird stuff. It's, it's a movie designed – for production stills to make the actors look dumb. <laughs> like, there's no way you can have production stills from this movie. Baby's in a turban, and, you know, he's got this blue face, and you're just like, this This makes these it makes these guys look... Like, there's no way you were going to sell this movie successfully in the pages of People magazine, because everybody looks so goofy. And, and even Hoffman, because he's in his, uh, m- you know, music clothes, his performance clothes. <laughs> Performance but clothes are it, so ridiculous. Oh, they always wear yeah. headbands, man. They always wear headbands. Yeah. <laughs> well, and what I love is that, you know, it's 87 and it's not like that style was 100% gone, but he's dressed more like an earlier new wave band from the yeah. early 80s. So <laughs> so he's out of touch even while trying to pander and be in touch to like, oh, this is the hip musical stuff. Well, it's because Hoffman's a, a loser masquerading as a cool guy. Yes. And, and that works for me. Yeah. So he's going to go through through this movie mostly dressed like a member of flock of seagulls yeah. and it, it's it's or you know it, it's hilarious we get the auction scene here and eventually the cia sends helicopters to finish off chuck and lyle but along with shira who shows up they fight them off with guns from the weapon auction so there's nothing more absurd than like warren Beatty in this turban with a blue face like firing rocket propelled grenades from a shoulder mounted rocket launcher. Like it's just set up for the most absurd images. Yeah. I think the more I talk about this movie, the more I like it. (laughs) Yeah. And what's interesting is unlike say something like spies like us or real genius where the, the hero actually does the thing that combats, you know, like they actually score the hit in this one. They kind of completely miss it. I think one bullet like hits the door of one of the helicopters. Yeah. But essentially at this point, all they've done is it's now too visible. And so the CIA calls the helicopters away. Right. They're, and this is know. where the movie just kind of plot wise just sort of ends. Like they realize that the map that they were looking for is sewn into the jacket that Chuck is wearing, that he switched with Shira at the airport. So they've had it the whole time, kind of like, you know, the Ruby slippers, you know, they had the map the whole time and it it's, but then the movie just kind of ends. Well, it ends with the, the resolution that matters for our characters. Yes. Though. <laughs> yes. Because in the end, because they have the map, they're able to broker a deal with the CIA and Rogers and Clark put on a performance in Marrakesh where the US military personnel fill out the audience and are ordered to clap and they get their record deal and 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 it's they get record everything Record album, they- Chris. Record album. <laughs> record album. Yes. Yeah, yes. It's an album. <laughs> Charles Grodin they're listening to it and there's like a general next to him and he just goes there's the single. Like, it's so good. It's so good. (laughs) 
And at the end, the the I, and I think this is the last image. You go back to New York City. None of our characters are in in frame, and you get their album, their live album being promoted in the record store. In the record store, yes, in like the record store window that they were looking at at the beginning, where I believe uh, Simon and Garfunkel Greatest Hits had been displayed. Now it's Rogers and Clark live, live in Marrakesh. <laughs> yes. So Ishtar opened on May fifteenth, nineteen eighty seven. It was originally supposed to be Christmas nineteen eighty six, but they were not going to make that date, and it only grossed fourteen point three million dollars at the u.s box office and i want to talk a little bit about the fallout from this movie because we we alluded to it earlier but honestly for Beatty and hoffman you know Beatty went on to direct and star in dick tracy next hoffman won the academy award for best actor for rain man the following year fairly or unfairly and i think very unfairly the person who bore the brunt of ishtar's commercial failure was Elaine May. And as you said, this probably would have been a cheaper movie had they shot in the American Southwest. But your employer says, we have money we need you to spend. And then they're mad that you spent it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Also, Elaine May is just a stone cold genius. And, you know. Oh, absolutely. She did get to, she did get, uh, it's not like she never worked again, but not in this level or capacity. Elaine May in the 90s wrote um, two movies, The Birdcage and Primary Colors, which were both directed by her former improv comedy partner, Mike Nichols. But she never got the chance to direct again. And it's honestly, it's a real shame because she there, there are things she does in this movie, despite all the, the craziness surrounding this movie. There's things she does in this movie that's absolutely sublime that is a high degree of difficulty in terms of maintaining this absurd tone, but at the same time having real feelings. Again, not having to switch back and forth, but having the those things simultaneously in a scene, and it is incredible. On the just the pure visual end of things, uh, I'd also like to talk about the mise-en-scene in a lot of these shots is, it's almost like an updated Jacques Tati level of stuff. So it's not quite the like super uh, long shot Rube Goldberg machine that you get in like, you know, playtime or something like that. But you'll get it in medium shots here. There's one, if I remember, I think it's at the airport when they first arrive where Hoffman is looking around and there's this, you know, local gentleman who keeps looking at him. Oh, yeah. You wind up with them like, you know, Hoffman's trying to sneak around uh, like a pillar or something, but there's glass like a tank, and you're seeing this guy's face behind him like sneaking into frame. Yeah, and it's all, it's all. There's a lot of a lot of stuff like that. Um, th- another one is when they first get to the American embassy and they accidentally punch a hole through the wall. Yeah, and then you <laughs> that's get, a funny bit. That is a funny bit too. Yeah, yeah. Lyle and Clark are then talking about. Like the show and all of this, they're very like into their own thing. And you see a guy's face come from the other side of the wall. Yeah. And then they're trying to like <laughs> put the pieces back up on the wall and they keep falling down. But it really is off to the side. You're, you're, you're getting all of these elements a lot of times that it's just uh, like, again, the staging and the framing. You know, people make make YouTube videos breaking down when Steven Spielberg does this in Raiders of the Lost Ark where like oh Indy's like packing up and it turns into three different locations yeah. and scenes because of how you're moving the camera and the and the characters uh you know there are things that are the comedy version of that in this movie yeah. and you just go it's at such a high level that I do wish I'd 
I'd seen more. Well, and it's it's a movie that benefits from from watching multiple times. I I had yes. seen most of it, but I didn't. I realized when I watched it this time that I'd never see it from start to finish. But I'm going. I definitely going to watch it again. And and the shame of it, it was it wasn't available on D. It never came out on DVD. Like it was it was it was kind of buried yeah. by Columbia for a long time, despite the fact that it is exactly the type of movie that benefits from rewatching. And we've talked. I mean, we talked about Big Trouble in Little China as a movie. You know that is now considered a cult classic because it was so readily available on VHS and DVD, and and I think it played on HBO in the late eighties. And I saw it in the movie theaters, but that's where it, its audience was found. And a lot of movies, you know, another movie I love from the same era is Clue. Clue was not a big hit in the theaters, but it became a, a big hit on video. Ishtar was not allowed to have that because basically Columbia buried it for a long time. And that's that's the shame of it. Yeah, and I, I'm a fan of this movie, and I just found out uh, it's out of print now, but I have to try and track it down. They there was a director's cut that really? got put out on Blu-ray for a hot minute. I have the theatrical, so there's a director's cut of this movie that I've never seen. That I oh, I want to I want to see that for sure. Try and track down, but it's harder. Yeah, it's 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 a, it's a little extra uh, on the dough. And, and possibly this had something to do with the fact that one of the victims of Ishtar's commercial implosion was Coca-Cola. Who, following the film's losses, they owned Columbia Pictures at the time. They took their entertainment division, spun it off into a separate company, which was then purchased by Sony two years later, who now owns Columbia Pictures. So that it had a negative, it's like Heaven's Gate forced the sale of United Artists to MGM from Transamerica. It's like this this movie's it was was such a financial disaster that it forced Coca-Cola to sell Columbia Pictures, eventually ending up with Sony. And, you know, it's like, oh, well, then it has like sort of real world. It's like it's like when Cleopatra was not a success, they, they sold off the, the Fox backlot and it became became Century City. It's like, uh, it's, it's amazing some of the real world implications of movies that don't do well at the box office every once in a while. Yeah, and... And I think that a lot of that real world stuff clearly clouds uh, men's minds, if you will. (laughs) I don't know why I'm doing a shadow reference, but I had to. And it's just, um, I'd say it's a shame, but it's also completely understandable that it's often hard to remove a film from the context it comes out in, which is why you need time to happen so that you can look at it. Uh, with different eyes, I guess, uh, even even like the the culture at large. Well, I you know, and I was going to ask. I had this in my notes. I was like, Rob, I was going to ask the question. Does and I already know what the answer is. Does Ishtar deserve its negative re- reputation? And the answer is clearly no. Like it's it's not a, it it had a reputation as like one of the worst movies of all time, and it is not that. It is a a big commercial bomb, but that has nothing to do with whether it's actually a good movie or not. Yeah, and for me, it I think it very clearly is a good film, uh, and I one that I enjoy greatly. But what I can also say is that uh, for the budget level, yeah, it really is a strange bird of yes. a movie, and was doing things that uh, most mainstream big budget comedy uh, in the United States, at least, and especially through the studio system. It was not doing, and in fact, you know, things were going in a different direction uh, yeah. for this kind of stuff. 
Yeah. Because uh, we're we're about to go on the trajectory that's going to land us like in something. There's something about Maryland. Yes. And, like, you know, where you're, you are going in a much different direction. Yeah, Dumb and Dumber, you know, is, is, is you know, on the horizon, you know, that, that the Fairley Brothers, that kind of comedy. Uh, it's interesting. In in the late 80s, Gary Larson did uh, a far side comic that referenced Ishtar, where it's Hell's Video Store. And you see in the background, you see like the devil renting videos, but all of the videos available in Hell's Video Store are Ishtar. And that's all you could get in Hell's Video Store. And a couple of years after that, Larson wrote the following, and I'm going to read it in its entirety about the movie, to whom it may concern. When I drew the above cartoon, I had not actually seen Ishtar. I only knew or sensed that it had entered the film industry lexicon as a major turkey. Years later, I saw it on an airplane and was stunned at what was happening to me. I was being entertained. Sure, maybe it's not the greatest film ever made, but my cartoon was way off the mark. There are so many cartoons for which I should probably write an apology, but this is the only one that compels me to do so. Gary Larson. And there it is. Yeah. It's it's a movie that people didn't see because it was such a commercial disaster, which of course sort of fed into this this uh, you know uh, this this thing of it being a commercial disaster because people didn't see it and it, it had the reputation of being a bad film and it's not. I agree with Larson. I don't think it's the best film. But I don't think it's it deserves that reputation. Yeah, I mean, this isn't my favorite comedy film of all time or anything. I do. It does hold. Uh, I have good, great affection for it. This to me is something, and something we don't often talk about, which I think sometimes it it would make sense in the context of this uh, this format. Preconceived notions heading into something really, really matter for a person's experience, and this goes way beyond even like movies or books or or if I have a carton of milk. And I open it and I go, does this smell off to you? Yeah. And I hand it to you. Yeah. Even if I just opened that milk and it was like fresh from the cow like yesterday, you are not going to smell great milk. Right. You are going to smell. You're going to be like, what's off? And you're going to be like, well, at best when someone tells you, does this smell okay? And you smell that milk. The best I've ever had is my own personal response is. I, I'm not sure. Yeah. I, like maybe it's okay, but I'll never say, "Oh no, you're crazy." Oh this no, milk this is, is great. great. It's my favorite milk. Yeah, and, and so it becomes hard once once those labels are put on things, and, and the converse is true. If something is like, "Oh, it's a big hit," and then you might go and see it and go, "That was hot garbage." Why does everybody love this? Right. You know, or or you know, and most often, if you're looking at like older hits where you're you go, oh, this was a really big movie 30 years ago. Why? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, and honestly, I've had it recently with, with movies because, again, I think this is where the internet, which, I mean, my God, I wonder how the internet would have reacted to Ishtar. But at the time, like now with the internet, it feels like it's the amplification of that. Like I, if I don't – if there's a movie I want to see and that for whatever reason I can't see it for a few weeks and you start to hear, oh, this is the worst movie ever made and it's like – it's just it amplifies the either negative or positive. It's like everything lives in this in this uh, hyperbole like state where it's either the best thing or the worst thing ever. And then by the time I get to see it, I'm like, 
well, that was okay. People are overreacting. Yes. Like it's, it's, that's the world we live in is this sort of hyperbole driven culture. And I can just imagine what the internet reaction would have been. It, I, it would have been even more. Oh my God. It would have been crazy. Ishtar in the internet age would have been crazy. Yeah, because you would have had Beatty and Hoffman stands attacking the people attacking Ishtar. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, like, it, it could have gotten ugly, Oh, my Chris. God. Oh, my God. Thankfully, it was still 1987, so the internet was like four computers uh, in, in, in like, you know, Palo Alto or something like that. <laughs> and if you, if you wanted to contact someone, you just showed up at the mall and waited there until you saw them. <laughs> That, that's the only way. That was the method of all human contact. Well, we hope you enjoyed this special bonus episode. Don't get me another Ishtar. We are definitely going to do a few more of these don't get me another episodes. And um, we have some interesting films planned. But before that, we have a different kind of bonus episode coming your way next week. That's right. If you haven't had enough of us talking about Warren Beatty, Tune in next week for a special Get Me Another Dick Tracy bonus episode. But wait, Chris, Chris, they they never made another Dick Tracy film. Well, Rob, funny you should say that. Uh, What's actually funny is that I had... Make sure you know. Make sure Rob cues you in the notes, but you didn't even need me to do that. It was that's that we're like we're like Rogers and Clark. We we just we're we're on the same wavelength. I'm definitely Lyle. <laughs> I I am definitely Chuck. <laughs> but Warren Beatty, as it happens, never made a sequel to Dick Tracy, but he has produced two television specials that aired solely for the reason of maintaining the rights. One in 2010 and one just earlier this year. And we are going to explore these very unusual quasi-sequels to Dick Tracy. And honestly, they are just so weird. There's no way we couldn't talk about them. Uh, And that will be available next week. I know Chris is, and I am also a fan of properties that are made just so rights can be retained. It's so weird. It's some of my. It's such a fabulous subgenre of the, of films. It's entertainment. so bizarre. Uh, at some point, we'll do a, 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 a the nineteen ninety five Fantastic Four movie. We'll go into oh, this, yes. this category. Um, but that will be available next Tuesday, our Get Me Another Dick Tracy bonus episode, and then a few weeks after that, we'll be kicking off our next series, Get Me Another When Harry Met Sally. Thank you so much for listening. Again, we are your hosts, Chris Iannacone and Rob Lamorges. And if you enjoyed our show, please consider subscribing and following us on Twitter and Instagram at GetMeAnotherPod. And remember, if you like the show, then telling the truth is certainly not a dangerous business. And join us next time as we continue to explore what happens when Hollywood says, get me another. Oh, wait, maybe uh, get me some more? Get me some. No. Uh, get me. No, it's uh, wait, no. Um, get me the one. Get me. Get me what I want. Cue dangerous business. Can be dangerous business. Honest and popular don't go hand in hand. If you admit that you can play the accordion, no one will hire you in a rock and roll band. But we can Where the beginning heart starts out
Why? 